Well, thank you so much. It's a delight to be back. And for you men, I'm looking forward, hopefully, to meeting a lot of you next Saturday, where we'll be in seminar together talking about the measure of a man. What does that really mean? In the meantime, I have been ministering over the last couple of weeks on another subject called the measure of a church. And we've been looking at, really, what does God say about maturity as a church, as a body, as a family? How do we know when we're really measuring up to what God wants us to be? Well, obviously, when we reflect who Jesus is, that's the basic standard. But as we've seen, that is very succinctly summarized with three words, our degree of faith and hope and love. And last week, we looked at how you produce that. Today, I'd like to continue in relationship to how do we really become the church that God wants us to be. We know we need the Word. That's foundational. We need relationships with one another and with God, and we need to be a witness in this world. And today, I'd like to dig deeper into this whole concept of relationships that God has designed for us. And let me take you back to the classic passage that we looked at, really, and when I began the series, and that's Ephesians chapter 4. Let me paraphrase the opening part of those verses, beginning with verse 11, where Paul says that Jesus has given some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, to equip the saints, all of us, to do the ministry and to participate until we all measure up to the stature of the fullness of Christ. And then he culminated that great passage with these words in verse 16, which we simply read this way, from him, that is, from Jesus Christ, the whole body. And there he's referring and using a metaphor blended with the application of the metaphor to refer to us as the body of Jesus Christ. The metaphor is the human body. The application of the metaphor is we are a body. We are the church. And Jesus said, from him, the whole body, that is, all of us, fitted it together by every supporting ligament, promotes the growth of the body, the maturing of the body, for building up, that's a key word, key phrase, building up itself in love, how? By the proper working of each individual part. Now, last week I left you with a question built on that last statement. What is the proper working of each individual part? That was a very important question to me as a pastor. As I was establishing a church or establishing churches, what does that really mean? Well, I discovered in my research a word that is used in the Greek text that is very, very significant in answering that question. It's the word alalan, and it's translated in English, one another. And it's perhaps surprising that you'll find that word used in the letters that were written to the churches, particularly. 
You'll find that word used over 60 times. Now, that's a lot of times. In fact, Paul used the word alalan 40 times in his letters. And normally when he used that word, it's associated with a directive or an exhortation or something we are to do for one another. Actually, as a pastor, I literally preached 60 sermons on that subject because every concept is so significant in relationship to how all of that works. Now, today I'd like to share with you all 60. No. (laughs) I'm going to share with you only five. And I'm going to take you to the book of Romans because in Romans chapter 12 through 16, the Apostle Paul uses the word alalan or one another eight times from Romans 12 through 16, which we often call the practical section of Romans. And you remember that when he got to Romans chapter 12, he said, I beseech you, brothers, I encourage you, brothers, sisters, it's generic, to present your bodies. Now, there he's talking about the physical body. To present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service in view of what God's done for us. And don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, get this, so that you may prove what is a good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. Now, it's interesting. Sometimes we stop there and we say, okay, how do I prove what is the good will of God, the perfect will of God, the acceptable will of God? Well, the fact is, if you read on in the rest of the chapter and to the end of the book of Romans, you have a number of statements about discovering what the will of God is. And part of that discovery relates to this word, alalan, or one another. And so today, because of limited time, we're only going to look at the first five. But they're powerful in terms of helping us discover the will of God in helping us to build up the body of Christ in order to reflect faith, hope, and love. So turn with me, and if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans chapter 12, your iPad or your phone. I'll have the verses on the screen as well. And I want you to look at verse 4, because in verse 4 and 5, Paul uses the word one another. He sets the stage with a metaphor, with the metaphor of the body, the human body. And he says this, now, as we have many parts in one body, and there he's talking about eyes and ears and, you know, arms, legs, different parts of the body, talking about the human body. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts don't have the same function, now he applies the metaphor in verse 5. In the same way, we who are many. Now, he's not talking about body parts. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about all of us. In the same way, we who are many are one body. And there is the time where Paul uses the word body to refer to the church. And Paul, by the way, Paul exclusively used the word body to illustrate the church. Here's another fascinating little tidbit. Fifteen times in the New Testament, Paul used the word body to refer to the human body. Literally the human body. 
Fifteen times he used it to refer to the church, the application of the metaphor of the human body. And here's just an example of that. Because in verse 4, he talks about the human body. Here in verse 5, he talks about the spiritual body. He talks about us. But notice what he says. In the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, and individually, and here's your first one another phrase, members of one another. Members all along. Members of one another. Now, I don't know about you. That's a very encouraging statement. That's encouraging to me. Because as I stand here today, I'm very much assured that you need me. I didn't say that. God did. But the fact is, I need you. And we all need each other. And the fact is that not one of us can say we don't need each other in the body of Christ. We talk about the will of God. Paul talks about the will of God. The fact is, this is the will of God. We are members of one another. And we cannot say to any other member, we don't need you. That is a very, very basic concept in becoming the kind of church that God wants us to be in this world. He's created us to be a functioning body. Now, in many respects, that's a generalization. We're members of one another. But what does that mean? Well, the beauty of Scripture is it doesn't leave us with generalizations because Paul goes right on down in this passage here in Romans chapter 12. And if you're following right in your, your Scriptures, you can go right down to verse 10. And here's the second time Paul uses alalan, or the word one another. He says this, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. Now he's using another metaphor. The metaphor he's using here is that we're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Another translation says, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Compound Greek word, brotherly love. It's actually the word Philadelphia. And phila comes from the, a Greek word, phileo, which means to love, but it has a special meaning, and that is with affection. Phila. Delphia really comes from the fact that there is the word that's used for, for brother, Adelphos or Delphoi. So you have a compound word, Philadelphia, which is translated brotherly love or really can be stated, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters because it's generic. Now think about this for a moment. Paul came into the New Testament world. The Jewish world and then out into the Greek and the Roman world. And he would have to look far and long to find a functional human family. He may have found some of them in the Jewish community, but certainly in the Gentile world. Family life was destructive. They had no concept of what it means to be a loving family. And God knew that when the gospel came through Jesus Christ and he chose those to go out and minister into that world 
And he brought into existence another family. This time, a spiritual family. The household of God. And God's purpose in bringing into existence the church, the family of God, is to reparent people, to reparent fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, children, to demonstrate through our relationship within the family of God what it means to be a loving father, loving mother, children who experience that because it didn't exist within the New Testament world. That's an incredible concept. And it's just as applicable today as it was back then. Today we have dysfunctional families in our culture and more and more that's happening. In a service like this, there are people in this audience that probably have never heard their father say, I love you. I've talked to women who've said, adult women who said, when I was a little girl, my daddy never took me on his lap and said, I love you. Little boys who never heard the concept, I love you. And they didn't see it demonstrated. How are they going to discover what it means to love as Christ loved? From us, the family of God. That's why it's a reparenting organism. And when we function as God wants us to function, we're literally demonstrating and experientially showing people what love is, what it means to love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. And it works. It's interesting. My wife grew up in a home where she never ever heard her dad Or mothers say to each other, I love you. I'm sure they did, but they just never said it. And certainly didn't demonstrate it through just proper demonstration of love. She never heard her mother say to her, I love you. Now, I know she did, but she could never say it. And she had a hard time expressing it. Well, I happened to grow up in a family where physical affection was very, very acceptable. I grew up with that. I kissed my dad until he went home to be with Jesus. My brothers as well. And my sisters. That was just very common for me to say, I love you as well. So when I got engaged... (laughs) I thought, well, it's very appropriate now with my new mother-in-law to be able to express affection and say, I love you. So after our engagement was announced, I met her, the mother-in-law, for the very first time after the engagement. I walked over. She was over there, and she didn't move. And I walked over, and I put my arms around her, and I planted on her cheek a big old kiss and said, Mom, I love you. You would think I was kissing a fence post. (laughs) A fence post going the other way. Now, the fact is, I wasn't really discouraged because I knew that culture. So the next time I saw her, I did the same thing. 
less resistance. Make a long story short, eventually she'd meet me halfway. And then it got to the place that if I didn't greet her that way, I was in big trouble. Now, what that simply means is that that's the way God created her and her culture said, you don't do that. Ladies and gentlemen, when culture says one thing and God says something else, what should change? Culture, not God's word. And this is God's word. Love one and deeply as brothers and sisters. And by the way, when you get to the end, we won't cover this one another, but right at the end of Romans chapter 16, that was the eighth one another Paul used. He said, greet one another with a holy kiss. What are you going to do with that? Paul mentioned that four times in his letters. Peter mentioned it once. There's an appropriate way, obviously, to that, to express that in a holy, gracious way in different cultural situations. But the fact is, it is the will of God that we be devoted to one another in brotherly love. There's where the healing comes in for people who don't understand it. Isn't that an exciting concept? We're a part of that reparenting organism that can bring healing into people's lives. And based on that love that they feel for the first time, they can feel love towards God. They can call God their father. I remember leading a young woman to Christ. And I said to her, Evelyn, you can simply pray after me. And I said, Heavenly Father. That's the way I begin my prayer. Silence. I thought she misunderstood. So I said, you can just pray after me. And because she wasn't used to praying. And so I started again. I said, Heavenly Father. Silence. And I said, is there something wrong? She said, I can't use that word. Namely, father. Found out later she had been sexually abused by her father from the time she was a little girl. And she couldn't use the word father. Now, eventually, she got healing. I remember when she could call God Heavenly Father. I had to change the nomenclature right there with the prayer, so I just changed it to Dear God. But eventually, through a process of healing, she could say, Heavenly Father. See, that's the power of reparenting that comes through the body of Jesus Christ. Now, in the same verse, Paul gives us the third one another. Romans 12.10b, which reads, outdo one another, outdo one another in showing honor. Another translation says, honor one another above yourselves. And by the way, when you look at that, think about the will of God. Paul has just said in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that if we present ourselves to the Lord, we can discover the good, acceptable, perfect will of God. What is the will of God? There it is. I don't see any ands, I don't see any ifs, I don't see any buts. I don't see God saying through Paul, if it's convenient. I don't see him saying, if you feel like it. What I see Paul saying is, honor one another above yourselves. Outdo one another 
and showing honor. That's the will of God. And we're to discover that. Now, what does that mean? It's interesting, when I was working on this concept, I was working alongside a a music pastor, very talented guy. In fact, his name was Brent Talent. (laughs) And he was very talented, particularly at the keyboard, the piano. And Brent told me one day, he said, Jane, I think I've got a good illustration for you and what it means to honor one another above yourselves. I said, really? He said, I said, tell me about it. He said, well, and he was about 16 when this happened, he said, and he was already very accomplished. He was invited to accompany a very, very well-known music artist, a soloist. And he was chosen to accompany her. And so he thought, Wow. here's my opportunity, really, to show her what a great pianist I am. Now, in essence, that's what he was thinking, though he didn't verbalize it. So they're in rehearsal, go through the first stanza. And he is over there at that keyboard, going up and down like there was no end. And he could do it beautifully. And at the end of the verse, the stanza, She walked over to the keyboard or the piano and smiled and she said, Brent, I'm a wonderful accompanist to you. Now, what was he supposed to be? An accompanist. But all of a sudden, he had reversed his roles and she became his accompanist while he was showcasing at the keyboard. That's what she meant. And she did it with a smile. Brent hung his head. He got the message and he said, Jane, I think that's what it means to honor one another above yourselves. I was to be accompanying her. And he said, I think you could say that every Christian ought to be an accompanist to every other Christian. An accompanist makes somebody else look and sound good. Not yourself. But in being an accompanist, if every Christian is an accompanist to every other Christian, we'll all be honored. But if you do it just to be honored, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, you spoil it. But in Christ-like love, think what would happen in the church of Jesus Christ if we all honored one another above ourselves. And that can happen even at the highest levels of leadership. Because he that is greatest is to be servant of all. What a powerful one another statement. Outdo one another in showing honor. So we have three times. We got two more we want to look at. Where Paul used the word alilan. If you go to Romans chapter 13. Beginning in verse 8. Paul said, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another. Now, he uses a different Greek word here for love. Earlier, when he says, love one another deeply, he uses phileo. Here, he's using agapao. Agapao is the most prominent word for love, and that's the kind of love that's mentioned in John 3.16. For God so loved the world, where you have statements like, love one another as Christ loved us. That's the word. 
This is an action word. When you do what is right, whether you feel like it or not, you do what is right. And so Paul is saying, do not owe anyone anything except to love one another, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Therefore, the Old Testament, because he says the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not covet, and any other commandment are summed up by this commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now get this, love therefore is fulfillment of the law, all of the law, the Ten Commandments in essence. Now to really understand this, what Paul is saying here about loving one another in this way, we can go back to the Passover meal before Jesus went to the cross. And you remember, he was with the twelve. Judas has not yet left at this particular point. He did leave. And then Jesus said, after he had washed their feet, he says, I give you a new what? Command. Now, what did Paul say? A new commandment fulfills all the law. It's love. Jesus is saying the same thing. He said, I give you a new commandment. You understand the the Ten Commandments, men, but here's the new one. Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. And then a third time, to make his point, he says, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Now, to understand what's happening here, you need to go back to the beginning of this chapter, John 13, 1, and here's the words that, we, that John recorded. He said, before the Passover festival, Jesus knew that his hour had come. He's there in Jerusalem. They're going to have the final Passover meal together, the 12 and with him. Jesus knew his hour had come to depart from this world, to go to the Father. And then he loved them. It says, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Another translation says, he showed them the full extent of his love. Now, to get the picture, before Jesus said, love one another, love one another, love one another, in the passage we just looked at, He sent Peter and John to prepare this Passover meal. That was a very sophisticated process. They had to go and buy a lamb. They had to take the lamb to the temple. They had to have a priest slaughter the lamb. They had to have the lamb cooked. They had to go into Jerusalem and get the other elements of the meal, all the herbs and the spices, the bread, and they had to get the various... Uh, containers of wine. There were probably four different kinds of wine at that meal. And that took them all day long. And at evening, they went into that upper room that was supposed to be prepared. They walked in. They reclined. But someone was missing. Someone was missing. 
they had forgotten to get a servant. Cultural custom, Passover meal, coming in off of the dirty, dusty streets of Jerusalem, walking in sandals or barefoot, streets that were traversed by every sort of animal. Cleanliness was the hallmark of the Passover meal. Cleanliness certainly was appropriate in any situation. And there was the basin and there was the towel, but there wasn't a servant. Do you think Peter knew the servant was missing? Or John? They'd spent the day getting ready for this. Have you ever wondered why Jesus waited until the middle of the meal to get up and go over and take that towel and basin and begin to wash their feet? He was waiting to give one of those rascals an opportunity, Peter particularly, to volunteer to be the servant. And he didn't. And that explains why when he came to Peter, Peter said, Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. He knew he had failed. He knew he should have volunteered. And James and John weren't going to volunteer because they were arguing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus said to Peter, if I can't wash your feet, you have no part in me. He said, well, then give me a bath. That's what you call foot and mouth disease. And Jesus said, that's not what I had in mind. And he washed Peter's feet. And Peter and all the apostles learned a great lesson at the end of that experience He said to them, a new command I give you. But before he did, a very intimate moment in verses 12 to 15 of John 13, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer clothing, he reclined again and said to them, and frankly, I think this was very personal, I think... It was just a very intimate setting, and he looked at Peter, and he said, do you know what I've done for you? He perhaps looked at John, maybe nudged him, because John was right next to him. John, do you realize what I've done for you? Nathaniel? James, do you realize what I have done for you? You call me teacher. You call me Lord. And you're speaking rightly. Just that's what I am. So if I, your Lord, your teacher, have washed your feet, and I think you could see them sinking deeper and deeper into those cushions with embarrassment. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet, for I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done for you. And then he goes on to say, this is the new commandment. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. Well, John, of course, probably was reclining right next to Jesus. The disciple Jesus loved in a very intimate friendship way. Sixty years later, he wrote a letter. Sixty years later, 
probably from Ephesus. And he wrote, by this we know love. Jesus washed our feet, and we ought to wash one another's feet. Is that what he said? No. Because that's not what Jesus meant. That was not the new commandment. Here's what Jesus meant. By this we know love. This is how we have come to know love. He laid down his life for us, and we should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. That's what Jesus was teaching them that day. They couldn't understand it. They couldn't comprehend. They weren't willing to walk across the street for each other yet. But eventually, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, John, this apostle and disciple that Jesus called a son of thunder, understood, I think, with tears in his eyes when he wrote, this is how we know what love is. Jesus laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for others. What would John be thinking about? His brother James. James was the first one who was slaughtered and beheaded by Herod because of his love for Jesus Christ. He couldn't have helped but to pen these words with tears, especially reflecting on his own behavior some 60 years before in that Passover meal. But they got the message. And so, we are to love one another as Christ loved us. The greatest commandment. The fulfillment of the law. But there's one final one. This I close. The final one another that Paul wrote is in Romans 15, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's fascinating. And this correlation is so fascinating and so reassuring because if you go back to the upper room, after Jesus washed their feet and said, love one another, that's the fulfillment of the law. They descended into the streets of Jerusalem They're going towards the Kidron Valley. And notice what Jesus prayed. Here it is. Jesus' prayer. I pray not only for these men who are following me, but also for those who believe in me through their word. That's us. Now notice, just like Paul's prayer that he prayed later, right here in Romans 15. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you. May they also be in us. Why? So the world will believe that you sent me. You see the correlation? That's a God thing. Jesus prayed that prayer. And here in Romans 15, Paul prays that prayer using the one another statement. We are to be in harmony with one another. And again, 60 years later, in that little epistle, John wrote, Reflecting on all of this, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. How are we going to reveal who Jesus is? He went back to heaven. Jesus said that if you love one another... 
as I have loved you, and if you're one with each other, you will reveal who I am to the world, and the world will believe that the Father has sent me. Now explain that. It's a miracle. God wants to use the love and unity within the body of Jesus Christ to demonstrate to the world that He was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. We can be a part of the miracle of demonstrating who Jesus is through the love and the unity that exists within our communities wherever the church of Jesus Christ is located. I've shared five. One another's. We're building up one another. We're members of one another. How does that work? Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another. Love one another. And live in harmony with one another. Just a final illustration. One of my favorite sports is skiing. Can't do it anymore (laughs) because of my age, but I love to ski. Came off the slopes in Colorado one day. Got on the bus to go back to the lodge. A man got on the bus carrying a young woman. She must have been about 18. He got on. I was already seated. He sat here, put her beside him. And I thought, oh boy, you know, somebody broke a leg, sprained an ankle. It was just a beautiful day of skiing. And and then I saw that this young woman had an affliction. There wasn't anything wrong with her brain. She was a very intelligent woman. But when her brain would send signals to members of her body, they would not respond. Even her mouth would contort when she was smiling, expressing how wonderful that day had been. I figured it was her daddy. He took her out, strapped her to sled, and gave her that experience out on that slope. As I watched her and as I watched her expressing herself with joy, really, for the day, I thought, you know, I've been skiing out there all day long, and my brain tells my knees to bend. In fact, my brain even tells me I'm going through a mogul field. It's calculating five or six moguls ahead, and my body's responding most of the time. I thought, how marvelous the human body is, but what an incredible metaphor to explain the body of Christ. When Jesus, the head, says, love one another, and we don't respond positively. When Jesus, the head, says, pray for one another, Courage one another. All of these one another's, all 60 of these, we can obey or disobey. But when we disobey, what does it create? A dysfunctional body. That's not what God wants. God wants us to be one as He is one with the Father. Isn't that an incredible concept? If you believe that, Would you say amen? Amen. Really? Really? Say amen. 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 It's the word of God and it's powerful.